The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. One of the most impacting questions uh, that I've ever really wrestled with uh, was a question that came up in a series, um, I think it was by Focus on the Family called The Truth Project. If you guys ever seen that, highly recommend it. Um, there was a question that they opened up The Truth Project um, with, and, and the question went, went something like this. I'm going to paraphrase it, but it was something like this. How different would your life look if you really believed that what you believe was really real? How different would your life look if you really believed that what you believed was really real? And you might say, well, Sam, that's ridiculous. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't be here. But what, what would it look like? You ever think about like, what would my life look like if every, if I really really believe this? I mean, God, we, we we preach some weird stuff. Can we be honest? We believe that a, a guy two thousand years ago was God in a man's body. We we believe that he died and rose from the dead. We believe that he ascended into the clouds. We believe that he is coming back on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth to rule the entirety of the world forever. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth and spoke it into existence. We believe some pretty crazy things. What would it look like in our lives if we really believed that stuff, man? We're not just like, yeah, that's just kind of what I ascribe to as a, as a person. Yeah, Christianity, that's kind of what I check in the box. But if we really believe that stuff, what would our life look like? I, I, I always wrestle with that question. Does my life look like a life that really believes all of that? You know, the Bible's very clear about something, and that, that is that we live torn. As humans, we live torn between two realms, two kingdoms. There is one kingdom, which is the one that we know, the one that we grew up in, the one that is ruled uh, for this moment in time by human beings and ultimately by Satan. This reality is twisted, it's fallen, it's broken, and, and it's, for a lot of people, it's all that they really know. But there is another realm, another kingdom, and that kingdom is separate from this kingdom, and that is God's kingdom. And in God's kingdom, there is no sin, no brokenness. And in God's kingdom, God is... In absolute rule, there is no demons, there is no struggles. There's a separation. The Bible talks about this time and time again. It, it calls it things like this, darkness and light, or the world and not of the world, or the flesh and the spirit, or death and life, or the heavens and the earth, or Zion and Babylon, or kingdom of earth, or kingdom of heaven. These are all idioms to, to explain the simple reality that the Bible tells us that there are two realms. Now, it's not that they're separated by some sort of spirituality and physicality. We don't believe that. We don't believe that everything physical is evil and everything spiritual is good. When God establishes the kingdom of God, it will be physical. Okay. What separates these two realms is one word, rule. You see, in God's realm, God rules. And in man's realm, God has given over rule temporarily for a season. This is what C.S. Lewis was trying to get across when he wrote the book Lion, A Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, he, he, he created this world called Narnia. But there was another world, right? It was Aslan's country. Aslan's country. It was a separation between the two. In Aslan's country, Aslan was king. In Narnia, temporarily, it was ruled by the witch, right? 
This is what he was trying to, to, to create. This is the story that he was trying to say. Listen to what Rick Warren says about the kingdom of God. Uh, he, he says it much better than I can, so I'm going to quote this. If Jesus is king in heaven, then the kingdom of God is in heaven. If Jesus is king reigning on earth, then the kingdom of heaven is on earth. And if Jesus is king in my heart, then the kingdom of God is in me. So what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is wherever God is ruling and wherever Jesus is king. So the kingdom of God, look around you, the kingdom of God right now is here. Why? Because we are here and because we are ruled by God and we are coming together as a a slice, a picture of the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He was talking about himself. He said, I am the kingdom of God and I am here (laughs) walking around. Jesus was this transcendent place between heaven and earth, between God's realm and man's realm. Jesus came being the kingdom. He was the kingdom walking around. That's why whenever he encountered demons, he cast them out. That's why whenever he encountered sickness, he, he spoke it and, made it and made it go away and made it heal because he was the kingdom of God mobile. <laughs> People encountered him. They encountered the kingdom of God. He says, I am the kingdom and I am in the midst of you. And his prayer was that his kingdom would live through you until he comes and establishes it. Everybody tracking with that? There's a really good example of this um, that, that I think it, it kind of embodies this, this idea of us humans being torn between two realities. I remember watching a movie uh, when I was uh, maybe in my early 20s, um, and I'm not, I'm not uh, endorsing this movie because I really don't remember if it's clean or not. It's been like 10 years since I've seen it, but really intriguing movie called The Matrix. How many of you guys have seen that? And it's okay to raise your hand. I was going to judge you. Okay. Um, so a lot of you guys have. But this movie is really, really intriguing. Now, here's the storyline of The Matrix, okay? So there's this guy, uh, Keanu Reeves, um, who is named Neo. And, and the movie just starts, he's just kind of a normal guy. He lives kind of a drab life. It's just everything is just normal, you know? I mean, he, he goes to work. He's got some friends, you know, whatever. He just kind of does his thing. And the premise of the movie is fascinating, though, because through a sort of a chain of events, he gets this mysterious phone call, and all of a sudden, these people are chasing him, and all this crazy stuff happens. But he wakes up here, and he's really confused, because he realizes that everything that he ever knew in his entire life, every moment, every second that he lived up until this point was a lie. It was all a dream world. That was being produced for him by, this is going to sound lame, robots, okay? But still, you get the point, okay? He wakes up and he's a human battery. And all of humanity are human batteries. And they're living in these cocoons. And the robots have taken over. This is what the earth looks like right here, okay? Now, this is the reality. Not him at his desk in the office living his life. That was all a fake. That was all a facade. Now, what's so intriguing about this movie, and what I think is really some, some biblical truth that they didn't even realize they were doing here, is that there's a choice to be made now. You guys remember this scene? Classic, right? If you take the red pill, for those of you that aren't familiar with the movie, if you take the red pill, you can go right back to your fake dream world, never knowing that any of this happened, never remembering that robots took over the world, And ignorance is bliss, right? Or if you take the other pill, you wake up and you have to embrace this reality. And I remember watching that and I remember thinking, wow, that's really profound. What would I choose? (laughs) What would you choose? Because the the, the reality that he would wake up to would not be a very fun one. (laughs) 
In fact, it would be terrifying. And, and, and by nature of waking up to it, there, there's a certain level of, of expectation to try to undo and fix what has been broken. But here's how I, I think that this picture is so well clarifies what I'm saying here, is that as Christians, when the gospel is brought to you, and when truth is brought to you, for one moment, you wake up and you go, oh man, everything that I lived in light of actually was not really as real as I thought it was. Up until this point, my entire life was about me, my career, my, my body, my life, my health, my joy. And then you wake up by the gospel and through this transcendent one, Christ, you realize that's not real. In fact, there's something much more real out there and it's God himself. And he has a truth that you will not naturally believe. That's why the Bible says we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind because we, are so, we have been so lied to for so long by the father of this world, the liar of this world, that in order to be a believer, we have to rewire our brain to God's reality. And the life of a human being, especially a Christian, is a constant tension between which reality am I going to live in? God's or this twisted and fallen one? The sad thing is, how many people wake up seeing that reality and choose to go on living in the fake one. Now, why am I bringing all that up? Because I just wanted to talk about the matrix. That's really the only reason. No, no, I'm bringing that up for, for a reason. I'm bringing that up because this reality that I just spoke of, this tension between these two kingdoms, this is what I believe was on the forefront of the gospel writer Luke's mind. Luke is trying to draw the reader intentionally to a very important understanding. There's a misconception when people think about how the Gospels were written, okay? Uh, so the book of Luke, for instance. People think that Luke was just a, a random compilation of all of these historical events. That Luke went, well, which he did, and he interviewed people, and he got all this information, and he got as much as he could possibly get about what Jesus did, and he wrote it all in a book systematically. That's not how the Gospels were formed. In fact, the Gospels don't tell us a ton of things that they could have. even says in the book of John at the end, it says, man, if, if, if everything that Jesus did was written in a book, it would be huge, right? So the, they, they chose to tell us the most important things, and they chose to order that information in the Gospels in a way to direct our attention in our mind to very specific things. Now, the, the, Dr. Luke, who compiled this information, did so in a way that he's trying to, to, to show us something. And everything that I just said about these two kingdoms, these two realms, is on the forefront, I believe, of the gospel writer's mind as he pens this. He's trying to get us to understand something. It's the same thing that Jesus was trying to get his disciples to understand. That this world is not the end. Trying to convey that. And what he's really trying to get them to do is he's getting them to try to make a decision about who is the Christ. Who is Jesus? Is the reality that Jesus has come preaching the, the real one or is it fake? And if it's the real one, then what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Red pill, blue pill. Which one are you going to pick? And Luke is showing that everyone at this time in, in the Galilee and Judea and all of Israel, everyone is having to make this decision about what to do with Jesus. One of the greatest questions you will ever be asked in your life is not just who is Jesus, but what will you do with him? Everyone's having, everyone's having to make this decision. Why? Why are they having to make that decision? Because Jesus is making them. Jesus does not let people sit on the fence. He made everyone that he was around uncomfortable. Why? Because he made them decide. And everybody wanted to know, who is this Jesus? Is he a prophet? Is he Messiah? Is he a crazy person? 
Is he demonic? Is he one of the prophets that was to come? Who is he? Jesus, through the narrative of Luke, is pressing people more and more so to have to make a decision. No one more so than his disciples, right? What did Jesus say to them? He said, hey, what's everybody say that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're this, some people say you're that. And Jesus says, okay, what do you say that I am? Which reality are you choosing to live in? He he gives a specific question. The disciples kind of panic for a moment. Peter speaks up and says, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that's been talked about from the beginning of the Bible until now. It's you. You're the one. Jesus did not allow people to just sit in the middle place. Jesus said, you got to decide, who am I? Am I who I said that I am? Or am I not? Decide. That is the tense reality that Luke is painting for us, that these two kingdoms are beginning to move towards war. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of man are beginning to move towards war. They're going to war because Jesus is a warrior and because he is the king and because he has not come just to be a long-haired hippie guy that walks around saying, you know, loving things. He is a warrior. He is the lion. He is the king of Judah. He has come to rule his land. And he's telling people, you better pick sides. It's tense. It's tense. You have to decide. What Luke wants the reader to ask this morning is, who do you make Jesus? Who is he to you? Which reality are you moving towards? And let me, I don't make any apologies for how how blatant or for how uh, all-consuming this statement might sound, but there are only two options. Listen, two options to what you do with Jesus. Either you move him towards the throne or you move him towards the cross. That's it. Either he is moving towards a place of preeminence in your life where you were saying, all right, Jesus is the king and I am going to respond to that. Or you were saying, he needs to be put to death. I do not want him as my king. And this is what I hope to unpack through the text this morning. The text that we're going to look at illustrates this perfectly. It illustrates it in this way. It gives us two contrasts. So we're going to do two case studies this morning. If you're a note taker and you want to draw down a quick outline, we're just going to look at two case studies. The first case study, we're going to call it this. We're going to call it the surrendered searchers. We're going to look at the surrendered searchers. And then number two, the second case study, we're going to look at the self-ruling silencers. And I believe what Luke wants us to walk away with is an understanding of two different ways you can approach Christ for you in order that you would ask yourself the question, what am I making of Christ this morning? So let's jump right in. Jumping into the text at verse 18 here. It says this, chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. I just want to pause right there and do a little bit little bit of understanding what, what's going on here. Um, just to get the context, 
There's two stories that take place directly before this. Um, we are not going to have time to exposit those this morning, but I want to just clearly draw your attention to them. Uh, just before what, is, what we're about to dive into, Jesus does two very miraculous things. The first one is, is that a centurion who is a, a Gentile um, Roman uh, ruler, he, he sends word to, to Jesus asking him, uh, Jesus, if he could heal his servant. Uh, Jesus, you know, is, is, is headed in that direction. And then he sends some more servants saying, you know what? You're not even, I'm not even worthy to have you in my house. Just say the words and this, and, and this, uh, this servant will be healed. You guys familiar with this story? It's one of the coolest stories in, in the Bible because what, what the, the centurion says is he says, I understand what it means to be the boss. People work for me. I work for people. I get it. Hey, Jesus, you're the boss. Just say the word and he'll be healed. So Jesus, what? <laughs> he does, says the word. And he's healed, and Jesus marvels at his faith. He says, I can't believe that I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. And then the second story is that Jesus is walking into uh, a, a town. I think, I believe it's the town of Nain. And as he's walking in, there's a funeral procession on its way out. And there's a widow who's mourning because she's just lost her last son. And now she will be alone. And Jesus has pity on her, touches the, co- the coffin, and this man instantly rises from the dead. Now, the reason the context here is significant is because, again, things are ramping up. Jesus has moved from doing a few, miracul- uh, a few miracles that are somewhat obscure and, and somewhat under the radar to now he's almost doing it seemingly on purpose. He's almost doing the most extreme miracles in such public way that w- that word is just blasting throughout Israel. Take a look really quick at verse uh, 16. It says, After these miracles happened, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding countries. What he's doing is so intense it cannot be contained anymore. And the news of what he's doing ends up coming full circle back to a man that you guys may have heard of, John the Baptist. Now, John was not part of the Baptist denomination. Okay, that was a joke. Uh, John was the baptizer. He was the one who did baptisms. That was his, his thing. Now, who is John, and why is news coming to him? Skip down really quick with me to verse 24. Now, Jesus gives us some really cool, in our text, he gives us some really amazing things that we need to know about the person, John, the Baptist. John, you might remember him from earlier in our text. He was the, the, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. God prophesied through Zechariah that he would have the forerunner of the Messiah would come through. And, and he, was, he, was a, he took the Nazarite vow. He lived out in the wilderness. He was kind of a strange dude. He, he wore camel's skin and ate locusts and honey. And he, 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 he was baptizing people in the Jordan out in the wilderness. Uh, but Jesus has some very interesting, intriguing things to say about the person of John. The first one is in verse 24 and 25. It says, when John's messengers had gone, out, gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What, did, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are kings in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? What Jesus is saying, first of all, about John is that he's the real deal, man. He is the real deal. He says, what did you go out to see? You understand, I don't know if you guys know this, but John had a wildly successful ministry. I mean, he was, he was a really popular guy. And people were traveling all the way out to the wilderness in order to hear his preaching. 
I mean, it wasn't the kind of thing where he was parked in Jerusalem and people came to him. No, he's out in the wilderness. You've got to travel to go see John. And people in droves were going out to John, and he was baptizing thousands. He was wildly popular with most people up until that time. And Jesus, he launches into this, this monologue about John, and he says, what exactly did you march all the way out into the wilderness to see? What did you think you were going to see when you went out there? I'll tell you what he isn't, is what Jesus is saying. He's saying he's not some reed blown back and forth in the wind. What does that mean? It means he's not some spineless coward. You got plenty of those in Jerusalem. You want a false prophet? Stay here. You got 50 guys, including the Pharisees, that'll tell you exactly what you want to hear, tickle your ears and give you some false gospel. You went out to the wilderness to hear the truth. You went out to hear someone who was informed by the reality of God's kingdom. You went out to see someone that has a backbone, someone who would tell you, tell the truth. Someone who is not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but someone who is rooted and planted in the authority of God's word. That's what you went out to see. You didn't go out to see some guy wearing soft clothing. You know what that word soft can be translated to? Effeminate. You didn't go out to see some pompous royal brat sitting on his throne, having people wait on him. John was a tough man. He wasn't wearing soft clothes. He's wearing a camel's hide. He was a man's man, a country strong man with convictions, living in the wilderness, ready to do anything and everything to serve the kingdom of God. That's who John is. What do you think you were going to go see? I love it, man. John was a stud. You know, what, you, you know why John is having this, this news delivered to him? You know, you know why he's hearing wind of this? Why isn't John just hanging out with the disciples? Why isn't he watching Jesus do the miraculous? You want to know why? Because he's in prison. Why is he in prison? He's in prison because he called out one of the most important, or one of the most most powerful people in that area, Herod Antipas. He called him out for sleeping with his brother's wife. He went toe-to-toe with this guy. He says, I'm going to call it how it is. This is who John was. He was a prophet, dude. He called it how it was. And it put him in prison. And days after the text that we read here, he loses his head. This is the man that John the Baptist was. Not some reed blown around in the wind. Not some panty waist sitting in his castle wearing soft clothing. He's a guy that is fully abandoned. Fully on board to serve the kingdom of God. No matter what it costs him. But Jesus was more than that. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, he goes on. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Huh. Jesus says that he is more than a prophet. Why is he more than a prophet? Well, he quotes Malachi 3.1 there. He says, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. What, what Jesus is saying is that John is more than a prophet because prophets pointed forward saying, hey, someday Messiah will come. John, he's the best man. He's standing right there saying the bridegroom is here. What a privilege. You know what made John the greatest man that ever lived? It wasn't what he did. It was what he got to do. He got to point to Christ in the present, in the person. The kingdom of God is standing before you. The Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. He's here. And then Jesus says one more thing about John, and it's worth noting because uh, it's really kind of a weird thing to say. He says, I tell you among those born of women, which is kind of a way of saying what? Everybody, okay? Uh, You know, besides Jesus, because he was God, right? So everyone is a human being. There is no one greater than John. 
That's pretty high praise right there, okay? Um, Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What does that mean? There was something, as great as John was, there was one thing that John never got to experience. You know what it was? It was the inauguration of the kingdom of God through Jesus on the cross, the Holy Spirit being manifested through the church. John never got to experience that. He lost his head shortly after what we're reading here. He never got to see Jesus on the cross. He never got to see what actually became. He died before he got all the answers. He never got to see it. But even the least person in the kingdom of God, even the least person in, in, in the church that has the, the, the glorious privilege of having the Holy Spirit and knowing that Jesus died, even the least saint from Jesus forward is greater than John. What an interesting contrast. We are blessed to be in the new covenant. Even the least of us in this room is greater than John. Not because of anything we've done, but because, man, we are in the new covenant. We are in the new kingdom of God manifest through the church by the Holy Spirit. That is exciting. Now, John, as amazing as John was, and as great as John was, John had doubts. Did you know that? John, John had some doubts. He was, he was a little bit confused. And, and what really what we're, we're seeing here in our text is that John is trying to put the pieces together because he is not feeling 100% convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and that, that's a little bit surprising. You think, man, if anybody was fully, like, for sure, like, yeah, Jesus is the one, you'd think it would be John. But John's, John's sitting in prison. Think about this. Why was John doubting? John was doubting, first of all, because Jesus was nothing that John had in mind. Jesus was so outside of anything that John thought. Jesus was so outside of anything that the Pharisees had thought or anyone really in in Israel had thought up until this time. He was so different. When you look, I was reading it the other day, when you look back in the book of Isaiah and all of these prophecies about what Messiah was going to look like, you would never have guessed we know now, but you never would have guessed. I mean, it just looks like this, this totally awesome, like, soldier warrior is going to come in in a Davidic kind of fashion and just kick Rome out and just establish the kingdom of God and, and, and set up shop and, man, like, set the prisoners free, right? Isn't that what it says? The Messiah is going to set the prisoners free? But where's John? He's in prison. He's totally confused. I don't understand. If you're the Messiah, why am I in prison? If anybody should be set free out of prison, it should be me. I'm the forerunner. I'm the one who gets to be here, getting to be the bridge to Christ, to the king. And here I am in prison. I'm about to lose my head. Doesn't make any sense. But here's what I want you guys to understand. It doesn't matter who you are. Doubt is a natural part of believing. Some of us don't really get that. We think that part of being a believer means that you never have any doubts. Never question. Never look into things. That's not true. In fact, I would say that true belief has some doubts. And that that's a good thing. It's a good thing because when you have doubts, it shows that you actually care about what you're putting your faith in. If I don't ever have any doubts, then I may not have really ever put anything on the line. I mean, John cares whether Jesus is the Messiah because John's head is it's, it's on the line. John's whole life, whole existence, his place, all of his chips are on the number of Jesus and who God is, and he wants to know. 
Take courage in that. If you want to know the truth, that's a good thing. You shouldn't want to know the truth because it means you have equity. You know, uh, when the recession hit, um, I don't remember what year exactly it was, but when the recession hit, uh, some people were throwing their, their, themselves off buildings. I mean, people went through crisis. People lost so much. You know how much that affected me? Not at all. You want to know why? Because I didn't have any, I'm like, I was like a college kid. I didn't, have any, I didn't own a house. I didn't have any equity in the economy. I was just poor. I didn't have any money in the bank. The, the recession didn't affect me at all. When you have money invested in something, you care about that investment. That's why Jesus said earlier, if anyone's going to build something, count the cost. If you're going to invest your entire life into the kingdom of God and say, everything about me is about this, then you better make sure that's the right investment. And that is the call of every believer. To search it out. Now I'm about to put my whole life on this one truth that Jesus is God. I better know, man. And John wants to know. Rightly so. He wants to know. Listen to what Tim Keller says. This. He says this about doubt. He said, there is a kind of doubt that is the sign of a closed mind. And there is a kind of doubt that is the sign of an open mind. Some doubt seeks answers and some doubt is a defense against the possibility of answers. What he's saying is that the good kind of doubt says, I want to know the truth. And once I know the truth, I will believe the truth. It's one thing to just know something. It's a very different thing to believe something. That's why John says specifically in our text, he says, if you're not the Messiah, then we will keep looking. <laughs> just, I just want to know the truth. And whatever the truth is, I want that. So, so what happens? Verse 20, he sends his disciples. And when the men had come to him, they said, John, the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind bestowed sight and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive the sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended at me. What happens? His disciples go to see Jesus, and Jesus says, oh, you want to know if I'm the Messiah? Okay. Well, just come hang out with me for a while. He doesn't say, yes, I am the Messiah. He doesn't say, no, I'm not the Messiah. He doesn't have to. He says, let me show you. Let me show you the power of God. Let me show you what I can do. Because anybody can say, I'm the Messiah. Anybody can do that. But not anybody can raise the dead. So he says, follow me around. And let me just say, when you have questions about God, God reveals himself to those that want to know, and he does it powerfully. He does. Man, John just wants to know the truth. His disciples just want to know the truth. Jesus says, you want to know the truth? I'll show you the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. Watch me raise some dead people. And you go back and you tell John, he knows his Bible, you go back and tell John what you saw. What did you see? Well, we saw the dead raised. We saw the sick healed. We saw the gospel preached to the poor. And John would know that the Bible says specifically, when Messiah comes, those things will happen. And those things are happening. And because those things are happening, Messiah has come. Jesus has the power to back up his truth claims. He does. But notice one little phrase in here I want you to pick up on in verse 23. After Jesus shows them the miraculous... Verse 23 says, and blessed is the one who is not 
offended by me. Why does he say that? He's saying, here's the truth. You've seen it, along with a lot of Israel. Here's the truth, but blessed are you if you believe it. Blessed are you if you see, you wake up and realize that your, your entire existence was fake and you actually believe by your actions and submit to it. Blessed are you if you don't just see the truth, but you actually say, I will believe the truth. I will be ruled by this Jesus, not just I see that he is the Lord. You actually make him the Lord of your life. This is the parable that Jesus was taught. This is what Jesus was saying when he said that there's four seeds that get cast out and three of those seeds end up not actually going anywhere and one of them actually ends up blooming. He was talking about the gospel and he said it's the same seed in all four accounts, the same truth. The truth is there, but yet only one soil seems to be able to actually embrace it. It's not a matter of just knowing the truth. Knowing the truth is not enough. You have to believe the truth. Like, well, what's the difference? It's a matter of your heart. It's a matter of God's rule in your life. Jesus said, take care, take care how you hear. Take care how you hear. It's not enough just to hear. And let me just say, there are a lot of you guys that have been here for years and been in churches for years that have heard a whole lot and have done nothing with that. There's a whole lot of hearing and not a whole lot of believing sometimes in Christianity. What would your life look like if you didn't just hear this, but it, you believed it? it? It moved you and affected you. So that's our, our, our first case study. Let's look at our, our second case study here. Uh, the self-ruling silencers. The self-ruling silencers. Look at verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors, too, they declared God just. Okay, now we have, we have John and his disciples. They just want to know the truth. They have doubts, but they want to know the truth. And whatever the truth is, they're going to submit to it. They're looking to live in God's kingdom reality, okay? But then we have the other side of the coin here. We have the other side of the coin. We have all of these people, including the Pharisees, who Jesus is about to address. He's about to wreck. And it says that all the people that heard this, heard what? Okay, again, looking at verse 29, all the people that heard this, heard what? Heard what he just went on and on about, about John the Baptist, okay? He just got done giving his discourse about who John was, and all the people hear that, and they go, oh, well, God is just. What does that mean? Kind of a funny thing to say. God is just. What they're saying is, is yeah, we, we believe John. We're all about that guy. Something really interesting, by the way, you know, a lot of people don't realize that what John was doing in baptism, it was a little weird. It wasn't a normal Jewish thing. Um, it wasn't like people just dunked, you know, people like we do in the church. Now, there were ceremonial washings that would take place in Judaism. That, there, there was some of that. But what John was doing in the baptism out in the wilderness, out in the Jordan, is he was doing something really weird. It was a proselyte baptism. What a proselyte is, is it's a Gentile, a non-Jew, who decided to convert to Judaism. And one of the things they would do when a Gentile would convert to Judaism is they would dunk him. But this is weird because John's baptizing Jews. He's, call, he's calling Jews to repent, which is totally weird to them. He's calling these people to repent of their sins, saying just because you're a Jew doesn't mean anything. You need to repent and be baptized. It's a totally strange thing. Now look at verse 30. Keeping that in mind, look at verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers 
rejected the purpose of God for themselves. The Pharisees have decided already, they've made up their mind that we are not going to serve God. Well, when did they reject that? When was it that the Pharisees rejected God? Was it, was it when Jesus started being kind of weird and doing strange stuff? No, not having been baptized by John. That was when they rejected it. It was way before Jesus started even doing his ministry. Before Jesus even launched into his ministry, while John is baptizing, doing this proselyte baptism to, to repenting Jews, the Pharisees are off to the side with their arms crossed going, uh, excuse me, I'm not going to repent of anything. They made the decision about who was going to rule their lives well before Jesus came onto the scene. And their track, their movement towards moving Jesus to the cross started there. It started there. They were not going to heed any truth, no matter what, when it came. You know, I don't know about you guys, for a while I used to think, well, maybe the Pharisees just didn't really know. Like, maybe they just weren't really fully sure. And, and so and that's understandable. Maybe they really did think Jesus was just some crazy person. And, you know, they thought they were doing the right thing by putting him on the cross. No. No, they knew. Flip with me really quick to Matthew chapter 3. I just want to point out something, and I want you to see it. I want you to see it. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. One of the most amazing moments in all of history, Jesus the king has come to the earth and he has come to take his place and inaugurate his kingdom. And, and as he's being baptized in his, this inauguration, the Godhead is present and God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my son. This is the Messiah. He is the son of God and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove and everyone there would have known what was going on. I mean, it would have been weird, but they would have known, wow, I guess this Jesus is the real deal because God just spoke from heaven. Everybody was there. Now, now look at verse seven. This is what I want you to see. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his, what? Baptism. He said of them, brood of vipers. The Pharisees were there. Now, maybe not all of them, but you don't think they communicated? You don't think that they talked with one another? You think the Pharisees really cared whether Jesus was a Messiah? You think they really cared whether he was a son of God? You think they really cared whether Jesus was right or wrong or true? They didn't care. They just want the red pill. <laughs> to shut him up, put him on the cross, and get him out of here. We don't want Jesus as our king. They made their mind up well before they put him on the cross. They knew. Now, we could give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they didn't know he was Messiah. I don't know. But they sure knew he was of God. His miracles confirmed it. He spoke the truth of God. And it did not matter how much that Jesus told them. It did not matter how much they knew. They had decided to put him on the cross. How? How could they possibly know that much? How could they possibly know all of the Jewish scriptures? Know that Jesus was God, of God. And still 
choose to reject him. Well, look at what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 16. Now, you guys, you guys know this verse, right? Here's the good news. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Good news. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Now here's where it gets a little more intense. Listen to what John says. So that was the good news. Here's the bad news for those that don't believe. And this is the judgment. The light, who is the light? The light, Jesus, has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is what is happening with the Pharisees. They are saying, we don't want the light because the light exposes our evil. Put the light to death. Get it away from us. I don't care if it's true. I don't care if he's God. I don't care if he's Messiah. Put him to death. That's what they're saying. I can, I can really resound with that. I got saved when I was 17, you know, 17 years old. And I have a really interesting story because, you know, a lot of people, they didn't really know the gospel and then it was preached to them and they responded to it. But, but unfortunately, um, I knew. I knew the truth, man. I mean, I was raised in a, in a very godly home and my mom and my dad taught me the Bible and I knew the gospel and I knew the truth. And I never had a second that I can remember that I did not believe that God was real. And I never had a second that I did not believe that if I were to die right then, I would go to hell. Because I blatantly, willingly was rejecting God. It's not like, oh, I'm just not sure. I knew. I knew. For 17 years, I knew God was real. I knew what he was asking me to do. I knew what it meant to repent and be saved. I knew what it meant to have faith. I knew God was real. I knew that he was wrathful and hated sin and he wanted my life and he wanted me to submit and I would not do it. I just blatantly out and out would not do it. Just didn't want anything to do with it. Why? <laughs> because I did not want the light to expose my evil. I just didn't. I was not willing to believe that God could actually do anything with me. But more than that, I just didn't want to give up my sin. I didn't want to give up my life. I wanted to rule my life. I wanted the throne. I wanted to be the boss. And I was not going to give God the throne, even though I knew it was his. Isn't that amazing that I could know the truth and still say no? Isn't that amazing? Those 17 years of my life were dark in so many ways. I mean, I was a technically good, you know, Christian kid by, by, by most standards, but I was miserable Every day I knew I was living in disobedience, rejecting the God of the universe who had made me to rule me, and I was rejecting him. No, Lord. Every day. And every sermon I sat through, and every time I heard the truth, I got a little bit better at hardening my heart and moving Jesus towards the cross so that he would be dead and stop bringing conviction into my life. And some of you guys have been in that process for too long. Some of you guys have sat through thousands of sermons and said no. And the more sermons you hear, the better you get at saying no to the truth. The more times God shows himself real to you, the better you get at saying no. I just want to tell you guys, be careful. You cannot do that for much longer. 
You cannot. The time to put God on the throne of your heart is now. It's now. Don't wait till another sermon. Trust God now. Verse 31, Jesus goes on to describe this this generation. He says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? He goes on, he, he says, They're like brats. They're like bratty kids. They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he is a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What is Jesus saying here? He's, he's masterfully calling the generation what they are. And that is, they're a bunch of brats <laughs> that want to control God. And they want God to play their game. They want to be the king. They want to be the boss. He says, you, you guys are like a bunch of little kids who are playing in an open square. And, and, and one of the kids calls out to the other kid and says, hey, let's play wedding. And the other kid responds back, no, I don't want to. And so, you know, the other kid says, oh, okay, well, you're in a good mood? Well, or you're, you're in a bad mood? Well, let's play funeral. And the other kid goes, no, I don't want to play funeral. I'm going to take my ball and I'm going to go home. I don't want to play your game. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what John does. You guys have already decided that you will not put Jesus on the throne and you're like a bratty kid with his arms crossed saying, I will not do anything with you. It's my game or it's nothing. It's my way or the highway. You guys remember that kid? Remember that kid that always ruined every game? You need six people to play and there's one kid who brought the ball and he won't play unless you play his way. And if you don't play, he's going to go tell his mom and take his ball. Oh, that kid. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, this is what you are. John comes, John comes and, and he's, he's fasting and he's very like, he's very like, like spiritually just, just given over to the things of the spirit. And you guys say, oh, he's demonic. And then Jesus comes, he's like, hey, I'm the kingdom. So let's eat, let's feast, let's hang out, let's party. And you say, that I'm evil too. It's like, it doesn't matter what we do. You are going to shut us down. Why? Because you don't want the truth. You just don't want it. You have no interest in it. That's what Jesus is saying. You might be saying, you know, Sam, <laughs> I, I get that, that, that God is, is real. Um, but do I really have to be all in? I mean, like, isn't that a little extreme? I mean, I come on Sundays. I, I check Christian when I fill out applications. I mean, I'm here, Right? I'm in a Christian, quote-unquote, nation, you know. I mean, I've read my Bible some, you know. Is it, do, what do I, what exactly is it you want me to do, Sam? You want me to be some weird fanatic? Is that what you want me to do? You want to put the, the bumper sticker on my car and only play, you know, newsboys and just be some weird Christian culture person? Is that what you want me to do? You know, is that, is that what you're asking me to do? No, that's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to be ruled entirely by one king. And I'm not asking you. God is asking you. Because Jesus said when he described what it meant to follow him, he said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So maybe you're saying, well, yeah, you know, I would never put Jesus on a cross. Not true. 
If he is not the Lord of your life, then the end goal, the end game will always be him on the cross. It's just how it's going to be. When Peter called out the Jews, he didn't just call out the ones that were actually there. He called them all out. He said, you have all crucified the Lord. You have made him not king. and Therefore, you are all guilty. And anyone who does not put Jesus on the throne of their heart, allowing every action in your life to be, yes, slowly at times, and yes, over time, conformed to the kingdom of God, is at war with Jesus. He is either king of it all or he's not king at all. There is no middle ground. I'm not saying that you are perfect tomorrow, but the submissive state of your heart is so important to say that, God, whatever happens, I know that your kingdom is real and I am moving towards embracing that kingdom. You want to know why it was that I was finally able, by God's grace and sovereignty and patience, to come to a believing faith in the gospel. I don't know what it was. Because as I said, I, I, I was not interested in the truth, even though I knew it. I'll tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't fear. I mean, I lived 17 years of my life uh, terrified. Terrified of hell. I remember being a little kid laying in bed, just absolutely terrified that, that I was gonna die and wake up in hell or that my parents had been raptured and that I was left behind. And I remember just living in that reality. It wasn't fear. Fear never drove me to the gospel. It was never, never worked. Uh, knowledge. I listened to sermons every morning of, of, uh, as a kid. My mom made me do it. Okay? I, I had all kinds of knowledge from the Bible. It never led me to believe. Although it was important. It was an experience. I had all kinds of religious experiences at church camp. All those kinds of things. None of that ever led me to submit my heart to God. It wasn't someone reasoning with me. It wasn't apologetics. It wasn't someone convincing me that the Bible was trustworthy. It was not even knowing the truth. As I said, it's not any of those things. You know what it was? It was for a split second, I was, I was able to believe that God was good. He was good. He wasn't just asking to rule me. He was asking to be my greatest joy. He wasn't just asking me to give up things. He was asking me to gain everything. He wasn't just asking me to, to get my stuff together. He was saying, I want to live your life through you. I want to patiently teach you to look like me. And that realization by the Holy Spirit came, and I could say, I could do nothing but crumble into the arms of God and say, Lord, I don't know how this all works from this point forward, but I trust you because you're good. We serve a king that is coming to make war on this world. And he will rule. You better believe it. You better pick sides. But he is not just a terrifying, powerful, all-consuming fire. He's also a father. He is good. You know, to quote the words of Beaver from Narnia, safe. <laughs> Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. He's the king, and he's a good king. Which kingdom are you living in? Well, how do I tell? Well, look at your life. What, what, what do you make your decisions based off of? Is it this world? Is it how comfortable you're going to be? Is it how much joy you're going to be able to find in the things of this world? Nothing wrong with the things of this world. But this is not the full picture. 
take a hard look because at one point, Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, he is actually going to merge heaven and earth. They're going to come together into one. And he will rule heaven and earth. And I don't know about you guys, I want to be in that kingdom, man. You know, we all have this really kind of lame idea about what heaven is. It's just not true. Heaven is going to be everything you love about earth and more. You know, we're going to create, we're going to work, we're going to have jobs in the good sense. We're going to have relationships. We're going to explore, maybe have some superpowers. I don't know. The kingdom of God is going to be amazing. There will be no pain and no doubt, no suffering, no struggling, no insecurity, no jealousy, no sickness. Jesus will be there making everything make sense. I want that reality now. And you can have it through the Holy Spirit, by the word of God. This is the purpose of the church. Did you know that? So that God's kingdom could be realized here, now. So that people could look at you guys and go, whatever it is that they have there, I want that. And then you can say, you know what it is that we have? We have a good king who rules us well. Would you guys stand? I think it would be amiss for me not to to invite anyone in here this morning that has not accepted Jesus as their king to do that. And if you want to either grab someone around you or come talk to me or grab one of the pastors or whatever you'd like to do, or if you want to think on it, chew on it and contact us later. But if you are feeling the Lord prompting you, it's the biggest decision you'll ever make. The most important thing you'll ever decide in your life is who is Jesus to you? Father, I thank you this morning for the power of the word. I thank you for this thing called the kingdom that we are anticipating and already realizing even now. I thank you that you are such a good king, Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that you have woken us up, woken us up from our dream state. And I pray for anyone in here, Lord, that is feeling that not only a tug but a push would make them so uncomfortable in this world that they can only find rest and peace when they crumble into your arms. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this church and what you're doing here. We bless your name, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good day.